Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. And Bruce, it is good to be back with you today. We're continuing on this topic of becoming your own banker and going through Nelson Nash's book. And Bruce, great to see you this morning. Yeah, great to see you. A lot of I've had a lot of comments from different listeners, uh, clients, potential clients who are enjoying this. We're not the only ones that have done this. Um, uh, James Nethery, I know, has done this also, and uh, but I do think it's it's nice to do this on a, as a tribute to Nelson's legacy, and to make sure that everybody understands that there are a lot of different ways to design whole life insurance contracts, and there's a, d- a lot of different ways to utilize it, and there's a lot of characteristics of a whole life insurance contract, and we're not saying that those ways are wrong. We're just saying that they're not the vision of Nelson Nash and his infinite banking concept. And so if you want, if you want to follow the, the founder's legacy, um, really going to the Bible, becoming your own banker, the book, and really diving into it is the way that you can achieve what Nelson, what Nelson vision was, and that is to take the financing and the banking function into your own life. And I've read this, I don't know how many times. This is actually this, my second book. My first one, actually, unfortunately, for the listeners that know, I, I lost it in a house fire, fire several years ago. So it's not quite as worn and tattered as my first one. But uh, it's getting there uh, from I like to take it on a plane and actually read it again on planes. And so um, and I get inspired by it every time. So I'm looking forward to today's because this this topic, Rachel, is one I think that needs to be clarified because um, a lot of people do not understand it. They do not understand what Nelson was trying to say. They do not understand the mechanics of this. And I think it needs some clarification. And also, this isn't something from, um, well, infinite banking isn't for an undisciplined person. Amen. This is one of, yeah, this is one of the reasons that it is definitely not for an undisciplined person, because this can get very complicated um, along the way. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's going to be great. And I encourage everybody that's listening to uh, comment and ask questions today. Absolutely. So today we're discussing how to pay more infinite banking premiums. And you are probably only going to come in to listen to this particular podcast if you are one of two people. One, if you are potentially an advisor who wants to understand infinite banking more deeply so that you can help your clients better understand infinite banking. Or two, you are already completely sold on the idea of putting money into a whole life insurance policy storing up cash value, being in a position where you can be the banker and you can capitalize that banking system and then have cash that you can borrow against that grows with dividends and interest. And you completely understand that concept. You've kicked Parkinson's law, which is the human behavior issue that we tend to spend or consume everything that we make. 
And you have, instead of doing that, you have been paying yourself first. You were very disciplined, as Bruce just mentioned. Um, and you are in a position that you want to take what you've begun and make it bigger. So that being said, if you are coming into this episode and you're saying, well, I don't really understand infinite banking yet, and I'm not really sure why I would want to put all of my money into an infinite banking policy, you still can listen today, but go back to the beginning of this series. We have lots of material on infinite banking that explains why you'd want to use it. I promise you that if you hang with us today in this episode, you will still find a reason to start infinite banking if you have not yet, because that is what we're going to also be talking about. But this is primarily for the person who's begun, has good habits, understands the concept, and wants to expand that system. They want to put in more premiums than their current policy is capable of holding, or they want to start additional policies. They're trying to figure out how to put more premium into an infinite banking policy. So Bruce, I'm really excited about this conversation today because of multiple things. This is another piece of what Nelson Nash laid out in Becoming Your Own Banker. My copy is not nearly as tattered and worn as yours. In fact, we just gave away our copy, which I'm thankful that we did. But all of my notes that were in there, I said, well, I'm just going to have to hand this off to someone else. And we have a new one on the way. So I'm working off of photos that I've taken of the next chapters and next pages. Um, But really what we're looking at here is a powerful tool called infinite banking that is using whole life insurance. And we're going to just be continuing to unpack this the way that Nelson Nash laid it out. And this particular chapter is starting on page 48 and it's called expanding the system to accommodate all income. Why would we want to accommodate all income and how in the world do you do that? And what do you need to think through? What are the pros and cons? How can you, where can you find more money to capitalize a policy? We're going to be discussing all of this today. And if you have questions, please drop them into the comment below wherever you're watching. And even if you're watching after this episode is live, please also share those comments. So I would love to know, have you already begun using infinite banking personally in your life? Yes or no? So I'd love to hear that. Go ahead and drop that into the chat if you're following along with us today. And that just helps us get a gauge for where you're at when you're coming to watch this video. And so Bruce, as we jump into this, I think it is very important to start with what Nelson Nash said here. It always sounds a bit strange to people when I say that premiums and income should match. And he does say that, right? He says premiums mm-hmm. and income should match. You cannot start there. You, Bruce, always are saying this is a long process. I think it took 25 years. I don't know if I'm using the right number. It was a long number of years for Nelson to get to that place of putting all of his money through an infinite banking system. But if you love infinite banking and you're in a position of saying, I'm storing my capital here, I want to do as much as possible because we all know that if you put in more money into something that's working really efficiently, that just means it's going to grow more. You're going to have more growth in cash value. You're going to have higher dividends. Those dividends are going to add back into the policy. You're going to get paid more on those dividends. And your exponential growth curve is just going to be amplified because you're putting more money in. But how do you think about moving from a a starting premium to growing and expanding all income. So Bruce, let's go ahead and hear your thoughts on that topic at the top of this conversation. Well, before we get there, um, you know, Fritz, uh, uh, a great listener of ours, uh, commented already, said, when I first started my policy, I went to an agent to order my whole life policy. She began 
to say it's the worst policy on earth. And then he put laugh out loud. Then she said, why would you lock up so much funds for years? And then he said, Nelson spoke about individuals that work in the industry that have no idea about the concept. Mm-hmm. And, and Fritz, that is, that is 100% true. And one of, the, one of the goals of the Nelson Nash Institute, which uh, you know, I'm on the newly uh, formed practitioners council, is to actually um, get 10% of the population to either have a policy or, or know about this concept. Because there's uh, behavioral research that um, says that if 10% of the population accepts an idea, then it becomes the norm throughout the population. And then it grows from there. And that is something that I think is really, really needed for a, a paradigm shift in your way of thinking. Nelson actually talks about this in this chapter. He says, the peer pressure and conventional wisdom is overwhelming. And so when you tell a person like at a cocktail party or one of your friends or one of your coworkers that, you know, you store your money in a, a specially designed whole life insurance contract instead of the bank, uh, there's, there's still some stigmas about that. One of the stigma is because people do not understand that it's different than a traditional whole life insurance contract. And so they're still looking at lack, a lot of lack of liquidity in the early years. And they also think you have to pay the premiums forever. You know, there's all kinds of stigmas. They do not understand it. What's, and that's if you actually verbalize it. I know some clients that say, I'd love to tell my family or I'd love to tell my coworkers, I'd love to tell my neighbors, but I just, I just don't think they would accept it. They would think I'm, you know, for lack of a better word, nuts about this. And so that's the peer pressure involved. And so that's why we are, we are going over this. That is what, um, to make it more into the mainstream. And so Fritz, thanks for uh, commenting on this. And you're absolutely right. There are agents in the industry mm-hmm. that do not know about it. But, but I'm going to say the financial services industry in general do, does not know about it. Even people that are supposedly um, well-versed in every financial product, and that would be one of the most esteemed positions is the certified financial professional or the CFP. I've run into many, many CFPs that had no idea how whole life insurance works. And by the way, that is actually on the CFP exam. So they haven't been, they have been exposed to it. They have been tested and they still do not know how it works. Why? Because even a certified financial professional who is supposed to be well-versed in all aspects of finances, um, they still have a bias against it even though they're not supposed to have one. It's supposed to be the most esteemed thing that you could get as a financial professional. So Fritz, really good. Thank you for coming in again. And Rachel, um, now I've already forgotten what you asked well, me. I just wanted to before. comment on what you shared because it's surprising to me how often I run into people who don't understand or don't know anything about infinite banking in our space, we are talking about it every day. We're talking about it regularly with people who are interested in the idea, but it's still not as mainstream as 10% of the population being aware of it or using it. And so 
I think it's absolutely valuable and vital for you if you are in a in a position of wanting to be in financial control, wanting to end up in a better position than you are currently or in a better financial position than you your history has come from, your family of origin or from the people that you're spending time with. If they're not financially free and successful, then you have to step out of that circle of what is common in in your thinking and you need to be around people and surround yourself with people who are maybe sounding extreme. I just heard this idea from someone the other day on a podcast that I love listening to their show. And they said, you know, if you want to make changes in your life, you might have to act in an extreme way in order to be able to to make that modification. You can't accomplish something completely different by doing the same thing in your life that you've always done or what everyone else around you is doing. And so that's part of the challenge is that when there is an opportunity for success and advancement, you need to step out of your current way of doing and being, doing things and being in order to get there. And so that's why we continue talking about this. And if you are in a position of saying, I really want to build long-term wealth, I think sometimes the conversation just starts with, well, I've made this money in my business and now I'm going to invest it. Okay. Well, the ending point of that is I'm going to invest this money, hope it makes a return, hope that it grows and i'm not really in control because that could be lost and i don't have a way to with calculated precision know that i'm going to have a an exponential growth curve because i'm having uninterrupted compounding in my life there's not a way to do that if you're just investing that money and sure you could just go make mon- more money in your business you could invest in a riskier investment hope to have a higher return there but really you're not in a position of control and when you really want to have an outcome that not only improves your financial life, but also the lives of your children, this is an opportunity to think in in congruence with that and be able to create a future that's so much bigger than your present. And that's why we continue talking about it. So Bruce, I was asking yeah, you I, just, it, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh... I was, gonna, I was asking you to just share your thoughts with this idea of why would we, why would somebody want to have their income and their premiums match? Let's just start there and then let's unpack. Well, that's really, yeah, that's, that's easy. Go, yeah. go, go ahead. And then what, what do we want to talk about after? And then from there, <laughs> after we say, well, why would you want your income and premiums to match? Then let's talk about, well, how can we get there? What are some ideas? some hurdles, some roadblocks, some strategies that we can use and what you really need to think about if you're going to move closer towards this ideal. But first, I think we need to start with why do you want that to be a reality for you? And Bruce, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. So so it, it's simple. In Nelson's words, he said, doesn't all your money go through someone else's bank? I mean, it's true. I mean, if you get paid, it leaves the the bank from whomever's paying you, let's just say in an employer, mm-hmm. they pay you. Now, in the old days when I was getting paychecks, uh, you get a physical paycheck and then you'd have to go to the bank and deposit it. Now they just directly deposit it. And it's amazing how people don't even look at their pay stubs. And I have clients that don't even know how to get their pay stub, which drives me crazy, which means they take no responsibility for their financial lives, which I think is dangerous. But I also think that's the way 
not only the businesses want it, but I think that's the way the government wants it. They they want it to to uh, flow from one bank to the other, and you're not paying attention to the money that's coming out as far as taxes mm-hmm. for the for government uh, programs such as 401ks, um, and that keeps people more subdued to uh, the lack of control. And well, so direct deposit. There, yeah. If it starts there and there's a lack of awareness about the income coming in, there's certainly not going to be a keen awareness of the expenses and the outflow of money. And then if you're not paying attention, then you're paying for a whole bunch of things without being aware of what's happening, which then is going to land you back in that position of Parkinson's law. Again, that human nature is going to just consume up everything that is available and accessible. It's amazing how much intentionality and planning is required for anything that you want to accomplish in life. And I'm just going to take a quick moment to talk about, I'm we're homeschooling two kids right now. We have a third child who's two months old and not really homeschooling yet. <laughs> and we're in a position of realizing that it's not only important to say, well, you're going to educate. And Bruce, I know you're, you've been in the education space for so many years. This is probably second nature to you, but at every single stage of a child's development, you need to know exactly where they are, exactly where you need them to be going. So you have to understand what the future goals are for them to be able to understand. And then you have to know exactly what their learning style is and be able to teach incrementally to that child's current capabilities and where they're at so that you can bring them to where they need to go. And that is a really tall order. And I can barely imagine a teacher in a classroom with a bunch of students having to be aware of where all their students are and then be able to create a syllabus and a curriculum that's going to carry all of them along, but you don't have as much individualized and focused attention. The point that I'm making is that it can be really easy as a parent to say, oh, my kids are in school. I don't have to think about how they're going from knowing nothing to knowing their colors, their shapes, their numbers, their their reading, their concept of phonics, then their concept of um, reading comprehension. You don't have to think about all those things if somebody else is educating your kids and you have no responsibility. But as soon as you step into that area of responsibility, there's so much that is this brand new world with a lot of detail that you have to be intentional about. And it's the same with your money. You have to be aware of the money coming in, where it's going, what's happening with your taxes, where the money is flowing. And that ownership and that control is then what leads you into a position of being able to keep and control more of your money and use something like the infinite banking system to be in a position that the bankers are in because you're aware of all of what's happening in the landscape of that area of your life. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me. There's there's actually there's actually uh, businesses now like Rocket Money that will actually help you identify things that you're paying for that you no longer are using and don't even know you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. subscription services. To me, that just shows the lack of financial education that people are not paying attention to this. It also shows the lack of responsibility because people are saying, oh, I'm going to have somebody else do this for me. You could do the same thing. You could look through you know, either your, your bank statement or your credit card statement and know where that money's flowing to, but people don't do it. And they do it on the guys that they don't do it on the guys that, oh, I'm just too busy. That's always an excuse. If, uh, if money is a, uh, the most important thing in your life, um, and I'm not saying it should be, but it sure seems like it for a lot of people because you cannot do anything 
in today's society without money, mm-hmm. then if that's the most important, why aren't you paying attention to it? Why aren't you taking 15 or 20 minutes a day to pay attention to what, what, where your money is flowing? And that's all Nelson is saying. This is all related. It's all related. Um, Nelson's just saying that money is flowing into banks. Why should it flow into your bank? And he understood that not everything could flow in there. Um, I should say he, he thought everything could flow in there. And it can after years and years and years of building your net worth. But there are guidelines, and we'll get into that right now. There are guidelines, and those guidelines have gotten stricter since Nelson re- uh, wrote the book. In preparation for this episode, I actually reached out to the head underwriter of one of the companies that we represent to get the most um, the most up-to-date guidelines that they are using. And this is very close to most of the mutual companies that we deal with. So the first, the first, uh, the first reason why you cannot get all your income working for you or running through a policy is the insurance companies put what they call income factors on how much premium you can actually um, pay. And then also how much income replacement in other words how much death benefit because that's all the death benefit is it's insuring against you your loss of income Mm -hmm. so income replacement factors um are as far as the death benefit is you can get 35 times your income for anybody from age 18 to 35 i'm not going to go through all these and then uh, 46 to 50 you get 20 times Excuse me. And then from 66 plus five times. So it goes from 35 all the way down to five times. And the reason for this is uh, you're not, you don't have as many years to actually produce income the older you get. So mm-hmm. you don't have to protect as much. Uh, as far as can I, I want to share on that as well, because what, what Bruce is saying is there's, there's two limitations to how much insurance or how much you can pay into insurance. One is how much death benefit you can get. Two right. is how much cap or how much premium you can pay for that death benefit. So the first one is that your death benefit is a factor of how much you make and how many more years of working time they expect you to be making that income. So that's the reason why it's going down over time. You would say, well, why? Why is the multiplier the factor that my income is multiplied by reducing over time? Well, because you have fewer working years left. But also a person who today is 45 years old and making $2 million a year is not going to qualify or will qualify for far more insurance than somebody who's making $50,000 per year. And that's a base on the basis of their current income multiplied by how many more working years they have left. And that factors into a factor called human life value, which is basically the replacement value the economic, I'll, I'll just say the economic replacement value of your production. There is infinite value on every human life. And I want you to hear me clearly on that. But there is a dollar amount based on your current income that tells the insurance company, this person is producing at this level. This is the amount of income they are making and what their family and their uh, dependents are expecting through their working years. And that is what they're willing to replace. So if you want to qualify for more death benefit, you then need to either get younger, which is impossible, or to be able to 
increase your production, increase your income. Yeah, and this is uh, I'm going to go I, I'm going to go off a little bit on this um, direction because I want to reinforce something. Um, we talked about either last week or the weekend week before. Policy design also affects how much premium you can get in based upon human life value because the lower you pull down the base, or if you put a single premium paid up additions rider on it, you actually have to add more term rider to the situation, especially with the SPUA, the single premium. When that happens, you're eating up a large portion of your human life value so that you cannot put more premium in because your human life value is being eaten up by the term portion of the design. And so for everybody that says, oh, I have figured this out, we need to do a skinny, uh, a skinny base policy and a large PUA, whether it's a, a level PUA that you pay every year or a single premium PUA, um, they have to understand that because of the term that they're putting in, they're eating up some of the your human life value, which just means that you're going to be able to, or you're not going to be able to put as much money to flow through your banking system as possible. So that's yes. not IBC. So um, that's very true, Bruce. So then if you've used up your human life value by putting term, which is way lower premium dollars that are not contributing to a cash value, not earning you dividends, then when you do realize I want to increase my banking system, you have don't have as much human life value running room to add additional policies to fund more premium on your own life. Yeah. And what's crazy about this, Rachel, I, I said we probably ought to do a, a podcast on this so people can see it with their own two eyes. Um, in a normal 40-60 split, 40% base, 60%, the break, what people call break even, and I'm I'm not even that big on that because Nelson says it's not about the break even, it's just about storing capital. But if you're if you're worried about the break even, it's going to be somewhere between year eight and ten. If you do an all base policy, it's around year 13. So the the benefits of doing that though is that you can the all base policy will have a that not the same amount of human it will not eat into your human life value as much as a, a SPUA a, a single premium paid up additions because with an all base you're not you don't need to put a term rider on it to actually satisfy the MEC seven pay test so, so yeah Bruce what's interesting more to put more premium into policies so that you can try to get more of your income flowing through policies. And Bruce, that's a powerful reason why somebody may want an all-based policy. We know people who want all-based policies for that reason. We also, when we added another infinite banking policy in our own family banking system, we wanted one that we could pay premiums as long as possible partially because we said we realize the value of putting dollars into whole life insurance. We want the capability to put as much in as, po as possible and not be limited on what we can pay in. And so that changes the way that you design a policy if you value storing money in your own banking system. So why would you want to pay more in premium 
I think one piece of answering this question, and Bruce, I know we have to come back to um, the MEC guidelines and why you can't put more premium in that way. But one reason for why you'd want to put more premium dollars into a life insurance policy is if you realize that if I put $100 a month into a policy and that will earn me dividends and interest, and when those dividends are paid back into the policy, I will earn dividends on those dividends. And that's going to allow me to have this compound growth over time that is going to be a tremendous wealth builder over decades and over generations. And I want that kind of generational wealth building tool. The only limitation to that growth is how much you put in. And then you're going to want to put more dollars into this infinite banking system to reap those long-term rewards. It's a different end goal than just saying tomorrow I want as much high cash value as possible in this policy and I want to go invest those dollars day one. It's a long-term view that allows you to reap the true benefits of infinite banking, but it's also the long-term view that makes you want to put more dollars into premium. So Bruce, I know we're kind of wandering around. Is the next place that you wanted to go the caps that the insurance company places on how much premium you can yeah, I want to I want to talk a couple a couple more things because I think this uh, uh, will bring to light what Nelson was saying. Um, there's a way to get around this eventually. The first thing is uh, estate preservation. So your entire estate at different ages, they know the insurance company knows your estate will actually grow over your lifetime, but they don't know how much it can grow. Um, so what they say, their coverage level for estate protection will be based upon 50% of the projected estate growth using the maximum parameters in the following table. And this table is shows that um, if you're age 18 to 50, they're projecting that your estate will grow another 25 years. They'll give you a 6% uh, annual growth rate from 51 to 60. 20 years, a 5% annual growth rate, and so on and so forth. So they're looking at, you can protect a future estate up to 50%. Okay, so that's, that's another way that they would That's larger than your current estate. Correct, correct. And then the uh, the pay for these, they are, they're, they are also saying, that's for the death benefit side. But they're also saying, I tell people this all the time, not only do we at the Money Advantage want you to be successful, and success to us is to actually have a system where you're paying as much premium into your banking system as possible because there's all the benefits that we've been talking about for years, but also because we do not want you to feel stressed. We want this to actually alleviate stress. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, I have a premium payment coming up. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. Then that probably means that you were not ready to make a change in your life or somebody designed a policy without asking a bunch of questions first uh, as far as how you can handle things. So what happens on these, a premium based on income, if you have an annual income between zero and 75,000, and that's for family income, uh, they will allow you to put a 15%, up to 15% of that into a premium. If you have an income from 75,000 to 150,000, They'll allow you to put up to 20%. From 150 to 300,000, it'll allow you to put up to 30% of your income. And this is income too. This is, this is gross income. This isn't net income. This isn't after taxes. That's another thing to consider. 
And then at over 300,000, the underwriter has discretion uh, to actually allow you to put more than 30% in based upon uh, factors that they see as far as other assets that are available to actually use to capitalize um, that you could that you could reposition, such as maybe have $100,000 in a money market fund that you just want to reposition. And then finally, premiums based upon net worth. So if you have a net worth between zero and 500,000, the percent of liquid net worth for total plan premiums would be 20%. So uh, that would be 20% of 500,000 all the way up to uh, 2 million to 5 million would be 40%. And then once again, at 5 million or higher, underwriter discretion. So the, the insurance companies will not allow you until you get to a certain level that the underwriter could have the discretion to pay as many, as much premiums as possible to reach your income. So what Nelson was saying, and this is where people get a little confused. First of all, they weren't the same rules back when Nelson wrote this. And then the other, because we've gone through 7702 changes since then, we've gone through different mortality changes since then. Uh, uh, We've gone really into a low interest rate environment until just recently. So a lot of things have changed. But Nelson was basically saying premiums based upon net worth. So the higher your net worth, then what will happen is, yes, you can only maybe get up to 30% or underwriter's discretion after $300,000, but then you could reallocate uh, assets from one place to another to pay for a portion of all the premiums. So example, let's say 30% of 300,000 is 90,000 a year, but you're making 300,000. Well, if you have other assets sitting someplace that are equal in, you know, let's say $2 million, now you can actually make 30% of 300, which is 90,000. And then if you want to make another 210,000 from repositioning asset, you could actually then get to all 300,000 according to the underwriter's discretion, because all you're doing is repositioning assets. Now, all this also takes into consideration human life value. Okay, so when you are, when Nelson wrote this book, it was, it was two changes of CSO uh, tables or mortality tables. So you were not getting, people weren't living as long, so they weren't getting as much death benefit per premium. So now the death benefit is a lot higher for that situation. So that the limits are always that you're not going to be able to get any more than your human life value or your net, which is equal to your net worth in most cases. So that is another thing, reason why it's very difficult to get all of your money through, but you should strive to do that. Um, because like Nelson says, it's, it's flowing through somebody else's bank. Why shouldn't it flow through yours? Thank you for sharing all of that, because I think once you get the concept of wanting to put more premium dollars into a policy, your first question on on your side as the owner of a policy who's the person putting the money into infinite banking is probably saying, well, where is this money going to come from? And that might be your first question. 
which we're going to talk about that in a second, which is a little bit more of what Nelson addresses in this chapter. Where is that? Where are those dollars going to come from in order to increase my premiums? But the insurance company has those limitations that's really important to be aware of. Not only may you not potentially qualify for additional death benefit if you're already using up your human life value, that's one component. The other component is the MEC laws. And you cannot, so say your death benefit is $1 million. You cannot put any amount of premium in to pay for that $1 million of death benefit. They have capped the amount of premiums you can place into a policy and still call it life insurance without having to pay additional taxes and being able to not break over that MEC or modified endowment contract threshold. And so when you're looking at it from all of the lenses, that's why it's really important to understand what the insurance company is dealing with, why they're going to potentially allow or not allow someone to put in additional premiums, why they're going to allow or not allow you to increase the amount of death benefit coverage. But then you need to think about it from your perspective as well. And so when Nelson talked in the last chapter, about financing a car. And he said, you have multiple options for financing. And this is why he came at the idea of infinite banking from financing, from a financing lens. He said, don't think about it just in terms of buying a death benefit. Think about it from financing because you can either use someone else's cash and pay interest. You can use your own cash and give up the ability to earn interest or I'm simplifying. He had five different ways of doing this, or you can use infinite banking. He also had another method that was leasing a car. He also had another method that was taking a CD and storing up capital and capitalizing your banking system with a CD and then taking money out from that. But to really simplify, if you're going to purchase, not lease, and we're going to take that CD method out, then you really have, you can pay cash. I'm sorry, you you can take a loan, you can pay cash, or you can use infinite banking. And when you look at that, um, there was a, let's see. Okay. So um, Joe DeFazio was on commenting on LinkedIn last time, and he had a chart that he included a link when we were in the um, the chat, the live stream chat, and I wasn't able to pull it up until later, but it was a powerful chart that shows the same thing that we communicate to clients a lot. If you are financing your taking a loan, going in negative net worth and paying off that loan, getting back up to zero. And then you're taking another loan again. If you're buying a car every four or five years, then you're taking the loan and repaying it, taking a loan, repaying it. You're keeping every time you're coming back to that zero net worth line. Well, if you're paying cash, you're storing up cash and then using it and dropping down to zero net worth and storing up cash to replenish your savings account and then dropping down to zero net worth. And in both cases, you're just flatlining. But if you're using infinite banking because of the compound interest, you're able to maintain growing up this exponential growth curve. And so when we look at those reasons or the the method of financing, the method of paying premium into a life insurance policy, and we think of it from a financing perspective, Nelson was saying, instead of just having a cost in terms of using another loan, instead you're putting your capital to work, you're capitalizing a policy, you're delaying the purchase, and you're being the bank which then because you are the one starting this business and putting up the upfront capital, you're going to reap the long-term rewards of getting paid dividends. So he showed why there's a cost of financing if you're using someone else's cash or you're using your own cash. And there is a growth instead of the cost, you're having a growth opportunity when you use infinite banking. Then he takes this example further and says, well, if you benefit that much by 
financing one car every four years through an infinite banking policy, why not finance more things? And so that's why this particular chapter then says, well, what if you finance two cars? What if you finance your um, your auto insurance? What if you finance your mortgage through a banking policy? And so this is a different way of thinking when you realize the amount of your dollars that are flowing in interest to someone else because they capitalize the banking system and they reap the long-term rewards, you can instead capture that yourself by putting up the capital, starting your own banking system and reaping the long-term rewards of dividends and interest being paid into your policy. And so that's really what he lays out in this particular chapter. And maybe that's not the approach you want to come from, but it's a little bit of a different approach than saying, well, my cash flow or my income minus expenses, the part that I'm saving right now is X amount of dollars. And that's what I have available to put into an infinite banking policy. He's saying, well, how can you think about paying your expenses from the infinite banking policy instead of thinking about it being a separate tool that's just savings divorced from your expenses? I don't know if I said that clearly. Yeah. Uh, you're What you're just trying to say is, and you did a good job of it, is that where do you find more money then? Mm-hmm to actually do another policy or another way is to expand your uh, policies to uh, your children, to a business partner, to your spouse. It's another way to get more money in. I just had a conversation with uh, a pharmacist down in Arkansas who he originally did his policy. Then he did one on his wife. He's enjoying them. Uh, He's seeing them you know, capitalize. And now he's like, well, we have other money laying around. What can we do? And I said, well, you still have room for you and your wife, human life value to do more, or you can do it on your children. He loved the idea. So now he's looking to do it on his three children. He can do it on a business partner. Um, There's all kinds of ways that you can get to where your income and your assets are funding more policies. You just have to get creative, and frankly, you need to work with an experienced person that knows how to do this, or with a person who's been taught by experienced people, mm-hmm. not just people who have been in the industry for a little bit, do not understand, they don't understand the little nuances. It's another reason why I think um, that you need to also work mainly with one or two companies because you can have these conversations with the underwriters or the president or vice president of those companies and say, hey, I know these are outside the guidelines, but this is why I believe it's okay to, for the underwriter to have discretion here. And we were told by the underwriter that because we do not have any lapses in policies and they know that we actually explain things properly, they never have any problems of our clients calling up the insurance company and saying, oh, well, your agent told me this, or I cannot believe they, they told me this. It doesn't work like that. They're very comfortable with, this was his words, we're really comfortable with your book of business because we never Which have any problems. Our, as advisors, our clients that are placing policies with that insurance company. So- Bruce, you're talking about the advisor. You're not talking about they're looking at the client and saying, oh, you have a past history, but the advisor has a past history 
which then you, the client, can benefit from. And then all our advisors are asking questions. They're, they're gathering information. They're having multiple meetings with people. They're not just sending illustrations out and telling a person, here, four minutes, like I said once before, here's your illustration. Well, how are those people actually going to know what's going on? Heck, we've had, we got a, we got a supposed illustration from somebody yesterday that was feeling very uncomfortable because all they did was send them a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet of the illustration, not the actual illustration. And which that is was not our team who sent it. It was another no, company that sent to company, this client, yes. right? And they were very uncomfortable. So they reached out to us because they had heard us talk about, you have to get all the pages of the illustration. You have to know what's going on uh, because the illustration is going to tell you that. Uh, it's, and the illustration is not even a, a contract. But all these things, these questions, this process helps you eventually get as much money as possible to run through your banking system. And that was the point I'm trying, I was trying to make. Uh, Rachel, I, it's funny, I wrote down something today to talk about. Most people just want the end result and they don't want to participate in the process. Mm. You know, I, I've said this for years. If you don't want to do the education, if you don't want to understand the procedures and the process, you don't deserve to be wealthy. And I'll give you an example. Social media is exploded right now, whether it's Facebook or, or Instagram or TikTok, with all these affiliate ads where these, these young women, usually with a baby in their arms, are saying, I was broke until I downloaded this game. And now I, make, I, I have a quote right here. This is just from last night. I make $25,000 a month playing a game. A solitary, a solitary game. Well, I bet I must not be on social <laughs> then, media enough. I thought you were going to say it was some multi-level marketing business, but I have not heard no. this one. And then two, and then one of them said, two months ago, I was flat broke, and this month I made one hundred thirty-three thousand dollars playing the solitaire game. Well, the problem was is that they also said that she said I make three hundred dollars a day doing this. Well, $300 a day is only $9,300 a month. Still pretty good, and I don't believe it, but it's certainly not $25,000, which they were claiming. And the other one was claiming she made $133,000 after only two months. So what my point is that we are constantly selling short-term success, mm -hmm. short-term success, short-term success. And real estate investors are looking at the long game, and most, most people that are in the banking business are looking at the long game. Mm -hmm. We've commented on this. My friend who actually had to tie up $20 million for 10 years to get a banking charter. And I mean, because he knew the benefits long run. And that is the problem with a lot of people that don't think long term, which is Nelson's first tenant of IBC, think long term. It's the same way with wealth building, because that's what he knew about the, the mindset of people. You, wealth building is a long-term game. Now, do, do, do people hit the lottery? Yes. Do people hit you know, a stock pick that they make a lot of money over a short period of time? Yes. But it is, that's the exception that makes the rule. That is not the rule. So, oh, my goodness. I feel like this episode... Oh, go ahead. I have something else I want to share on what you said two minutes ago, but 
you share what you oh, have. Well, go ahead. Okay. So ahead. you were saying this idea of being able to talk with an advisor and not just get a four minute conversation and then send an illustration. The way a four minute conversation works, which you don't have to be a genius to figure this out is, well, you as the client have to figure out what you can put into a policy. And then you tell that advisor, here's what I want to pay into a policy. And then they say, okay, let's design a policy based on that amount of money. Okay. So that puts the onus on you, the client to figure out exactly how and where all this cash is coming from. Either it's coming from net worth or it's coming from your income or it's coming from the cash flow you have, or it's coming from financing an auto one car every four years, or it's coming from you saying, look, I figured this whole thing out. I read Nelson Nash and I'm going to finance not one car, but two cars plus my mortgage. And I'm going to run all my income through a policy. And therefore I make $300,000 a year. I want to finance a policy at 250,000 a year. Hey advisor, could you please design me a policy for 250,000 a year? Oh yes, sure. I can do that. So you've cut out all of these pieces of putting the process together of really realizing if this is the right fit and the right step for you. And that's where people try to start too far ahead of where they should be starting. So four minute conversations, that's why they don't work because it puts the responsibility on you to figure out what exactly you should be funding a policy with instead of really looking at the big picture. And so it's very important to understand where the capital is coming from in order to pay these premiums. I just wanted to add that in. No, that's great. And let's, let me get back a little bit to where uh, I started. Where do you get the additional money for these policies? We talked about um, uh, the, the ins- insurance coverage. So I personally, on my home, when I first went to my broker, and I, and I think she's wonderful, um, I said, she said, well, here's the, here's the quote. And, and on my home, she had a $1,000 deductible. And I said, no, I want to go with a, a $10,000 deductible. And she goes, what? And I'm like, yeah, I want a $10,000 deductible. And she says, well, if you have a problem, then you're going to have to pay the first $10,000. I said, yes, but I'm going to have a lower annual premium. And, and she did up the quote. And she goes, but look, if you have one problem, if you have one problem, you don't actually make up that difference in premium. I think it was for 11 years. In other words, my savings, I would have had to go 11 years without a problem to make up that difference of $9,000. But then I said to her, well, that's true. But if I have a claim, if I have a claim, what happens to my premiums? The premiums increase. For all you people listening, if you don't know that, um, if you make a claim, your premiums increase. So now that that gets shorter and shorter. If I have enough money in my banking policy that I can pay the first $10,000 of a claim, then my premiums won't go up. Okay, so I'm lessening the the uh, amount of difference of, of the break-even of the premiums there. The other thing is, is I am in total control and I'm making money on the premiums that the savings of the premium now, because that is money that's going into a policy. And I do the same thing with my cars and she's starting to get it. She's, she's like, oh, this makes perfect sense mm-hmm. because you're not, you're, you're self-financing any kind of claim you might make. 
And then your premiums won't go up based on the claims. Now they go up based on other factors, uh, but based upon your own personal claim. And so she's getting it now, now all the time. She just says, Hey, well, actually I think it was last year or two years ago. She said, Oh, this company will actually allow you to go up to $15,000 of a deductible. Would you like to do that? And, and I'm, I'm like, sure yeah, let's, yes. do a, let's do 50,000. Let's do 15,000. Let's see it. It's the same reason when you go and you buy an automobile and they say, do you want a warranty in case something breaks down? Well, Nelson would say, don't buy the extended warranty. We just bought my wife a car. Extended warranty. If you finance the extended warranty, because the guy said, we can finance it. I'm like, okay, tell me what the finance uh, cost is. And it came over $6,000 if you financed it. $6,000 above said, the purchase price. And I said, well, what if you just pay cash for it? And he says, oh, it's $4,800. So it was a $1,200 that, that people just roll into their loans. And it's more money that's flowing to the bank. So I said, well, I'm not doing it. He goes, and I mean, first of all, they, they get paid. There's nothing wrong with this, mm-hmm. but the finance people get paid on extended warranties, selling extended warranties. How mm-hmm. do I know this? Because I have three buddies that actually, wait a minute, one, two, I have four buddies that actually own car dealerships and three of them I've talked to about this. And they say, yeah, the extended warranty companies pay them our finance people, a nice premium to actually sell those warranties. So they get like a bonus for doing it. Once again, nothing wrong with it. And why isn't there anything wrong with it? What I'm about to say right now. If something breaks down in my car, I can afford to pay the $4,800. Why? Because I've been capitalizing money in my policies for years. Other people though, a $4,800 repair, that would kill them. Mm-hmm. So they would rather take out an extended warranty, pay $6,000 from financing to actually make sure that that doesn't kill them. Now, that's a short-term thinking. If they would have capitalized a policy for years, not only could they buy cars with their, their own bank, their own IBC policy, but they could also finance the extended warranty situation. So that's another example. Yes. And then the final one I want to talk about real quickly is with the pharmacist. We talked about this the other day too. He's like, I pay quarterly taxes. Couldn't I use my quarterly, what I normally pay quarterly taxes? Could I use that to fund and then borrow against it to pay my taxes? And I said, yes, as long as you pay the, pay the loans back. And he was sitting on $800,000 in, in the bank that he used for operating capital. So I was confident he was going to pay the loans back. But that's another example, paying your quarterly taxes. But you have to be disciplined to do that because you have to pay those quarter, excuse me, quarterly taxes. That's another way you can do it. This is all about long-term thinking. And Bruce, I think we've made that really clear throughout this episode today, that the longer you think ahead, the better decisions you can make because you're not just doing what's going to work for you tomorrow. And if it would break you financially to have that $4,800 auto repair or to have to pay that $10,000 deductible for your home if something happened, then you don't want to set it up this way. It would not be feasible or financially prudent for you to put yourself in a position where you have to pay more cash for something that you don't have. 
So that's part of the reason why it's a it's a process to start from where you are to shifting and putting more into savings, increasing your percentage of savings if you're not saving already, and getting to a position where then you're able to put that savings over into a more effective tool to grow that better. And then you can reduce some of those costs like auto warranties for new cars and premium dollars for your liability insurance. These are all tools available to you. The the better decisions you make today, the more options you have tomorrow to be able to continue making better decisions. And so wherever you're at today, start by making one good decision and that will allow you more opportunity to make better and better decisions in the future. And Bruce, I think you're looking at the comments. We probably um, want to bring these in right before yeah. we close the show out here. So um, we've got some on multiple platforms, but we've got, actually, no, I think they're all on YouTube. Yeah. So Becca, Becca Wilhite says, funny how people get uptight about losing liquidity for eight or 10 years, but don't bat an eye about locking up their 401k or IRA until 59 and a half. And so that's a really good point. Um, the only thing I would say is that, you know, uh, people are using liquid money to fund your policy. So I can understand it a little bit more in that situation. Um, but still, if they're thinking about it, and if they have enough information and they understand that you can pay premiums by surrendering values and so on and so forth, the liquidity doesn't isn't as big a deal. And Fritz has always got some great uh, comments. Uh, do you think it's advantageous for uh, a person's living in countries that have no mech structure and also with no PUA rider? However, with the option of injecting money through the payment of loans uh, via PUAs, I think mm-hmm. what Fritz is saying, I think what Fritz is saying is exactly what Nelson is talking about. When Nelson says to, to capitalize five years or seven years, and he's not capitalizing after that. He shows it on his illustration. That's that didn't mean that Nelson said to stop actually funding your policy. What he was then saying is when you take loans, you're going to pay yourself more back. You're going to, and part of it's going to pay the loans. If it was a 5% loan, Nelson would say pay 10%. People get confused about this all the time. They're like, well, wait a minute. I can't put more money in because it's a mech situation. Well, Nelson, what Nelson was saying was the other 5% is going to pay for next year's PUAs. So all it was doing is purchasing more PUAs. And I believe that's what Fritz was trying to say, uh, payments of loans via PUAs. So yes, that's a very good, uh, very good point. And then the last thing that I would like to bring into the show today is the Austrian economists are always talking about the business cycle. And we have, uh, and that business cycle is great times from low interest rates, stock market takes off, higher interest rates. We have the boom and bust. It booms, it takes off, and then it busts because of higher interest rates. And we go through that over and over and over again. Why? Because the Federal Reserve and our government tends to have short-term thinking. 
And that short-term thinking causes them what the Austrians call malinvestment that allows this easy money to actually make poor decisions that they wouldn't make if money cost them, the cost of capital. This is what we're always talking about. Capital costs something to obtain. We discount our own capital that we're keeping in the bank. There's a cost to obtaining that. What is that cost? That is That cost is opportunity cost, the ability to make money on that money, to try to alleviate that if you can put it into, and then Nelson said there's a variety of ways you could do this, CDs, you can use home equity lines of credit, but the most advantageous way to not lose that opportunity cost is to actually use whole life insurance because you're going to get that compounding and you're going to be able to borrow against that on a guaranteed basis. Where if you borrow against, if you borrow against um, your home, well, first of all, it's not guaranteed your home's going to value is going to go up and you have to pay back on their schedule, not your schedule. Why? Because it's not your bank. If you're borrowing a CD against a CD, you have to pay back on their schedule, not your schedule, because you're borrowing it against the bank, not your bank. So just keep that in mind. Short-term thinking causes the boom and bust cycle, mm-hmm. causes malinvestments, which means poor investments. You have to overcome that yourself. So don't be afraid to capitalize and think long-term. I think this has been a great conversation today. If you have comments or questions, we'd love to have you drop those into the comments section of wherever you're watching or listening, even after the show. So once this is not live any longer, there still is the opportunity to get that feedback. We love your comments. We love your feedback. We love your questions. You can do that multiple ways. You can put them in the comments section. You can also email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com if you have a personal question, or if you want to figure out how to implement this for yourself and you're saying, look, I think I know what I want to put into uh, premium dollars, but I really want to review this. I want to get the full picture. I want to understand where I should start with considering my circumstance right now, and then be able to give myself that running room to add more policies and put more premium dollars in later. We'd love to be able to have that conversation with you. And you can book a call with our advisors over at themoneyadvantage.com. On the front page, there is a link that says access the calendar and you can go straight to the calendar and book your call and be able to jump into that conversation and really say, how do I make sure I'm making the ideal decisions so that I can recover that financing cost that's usually being paid out to other banking institutions? How do I begin to capitalize my own banking system? And as I'm capitalizing that banking system, be in a position to reap the rewards and earn those dividends and earn interest and put myself on that compound growth curve and be able to create generational wealth and really be setting myself up for a position of control and ownership in the future with that long-term thinking. We'd love to be part of that conversation and helping you make the best decisions moving forward so that you can optimize your finances. So you can do that by going over to themoneyadvantage.com and booking your call. With that, we're going to go ahead and close out today. We still have quite a bit of running room left in this book on becoming your own banker. And we also are going to be bringing in conversations with people who are thinking about finance from this healthy abundance viewpoint and this lens of really being able to help you make the best financial decisions. And so thank you for being with us on this journey. And we look forward to seeing you next time. So with that, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd.
and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.